Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Chapter 4 of The Drums of Jeopardy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. The Drums of Jeopardy by Harold McGrath. Chapter 4 Kitty Conover had inherited brains and beauty, and nothing else but the furniture. Her father had been a famous reporter the admiration of clubs from New York to San Francisco, handsome, happy-go-lucky, generous, rather improvident, and wholly lovable. Her mother had been a comedy actress, noted for her beauty and wit and extravagance. Thus it will be seen that Kitty was in luck to inherit any furniture at all. Kitty was twenty-four, a body is as old as it is, but a brain is as old as the facts it absorbs, and Kitty had absorbed enough facts to carry her brain well into the thirties. Conover had been dead twenty years, and Kitty had scarcely any recollections of him. Improvident as the run of newspaper writers are, Conover had fulfilled one obligation to his family— he had kept up his endowment policies, and for eighteen years the insurance had taken care of Kitty and her mother, who because of a weak ankle had not been able to return to the scenes of her former triumphs. In 1915 this darling mother, whom Kitty loved to idle tree, had passed on. There was enough for the funeral and the cleaning up of the bills, but that was all. The income ceased with Mrs. Conover's demise. Kitty saw that she must give up writing short stories, which nobody wanted, and go to work. So she proceeded at once to the newspaper office where her father's name was still a tradition, and applied for a job. It was frankly a charity job, but Kitty was never to know that because she fell into the newspaper game naturally and when they discovered her wide acquaintance among theatrical celebrities, they switched her into the dramatic department, where she had astonishing success as a raconteur. She was now assistant dramatic editor of the Sunday issue, and her pay envelope had four crisp ten-dollar notes in it each Monday. 
she still remained in the old apartment, sentiment as much as anything. She had been born in it, and her happiest days had been spent there. She lived alone, without help, being one of that singular type of womanhood that is impervious to the rust of loneliness. Her daily activities sufficed the gregarious instincts, and it was often a relief to move about in silence. Among other things, Kitty had foresight. She had learned that a little money in the background was the most satisfying thing in existence. So many times she and her mother had just reached the insurance check with grumbling bill collectors in the hall that she was determined never to be poor. She had to fight constantly her love of finery inherited from her mother and her love of good times inherited from her father. So she established a bank account and to date had not drawn a check against it which speaks well for her will-power, an attribute cultivated, not inherited. Kitty was as pleasing to the eye as a basket of fruit. Her beauty was animated. There was an expression in her eyes and on her lips that spoke of laughter always on tiptoe. An inviolable inheritance, this, the desire to laugh, to be searching always for a vent, to laughter. It is something money cannot buy, something not to be cultivated, a true gift of the gods. This desire to laugh is found invariably in the tender and valorous, and Kitty was both, brown hair with running threads of gold that was always catching light, slate blue eyes with heavy black fringe Irish, colour that waxed and waned, and a healthy, shapely body. Topped by a sparkling intellect, these gifts made Kitty desirable of men. Kitty had no bow. After the adolescent days, bows ceased to interest her. This would indicate that she was inclined toward suffrage. Nothing of the kind. Intensely romantic, she determined to await the grand passion or go it alone no experimental adventures for her. Be assured that she weighed every new man she met, and finding some flaw discarded him as a matrimonial possibility. Besides, her unusual facilities to view and judge men had shown her masculine phases the average woman would have discovered only after the fatal knot was tied. She did not suspect that she was romantical. She attributed her wariness to common sense. If there is one place where a pretty young woman may labour without having to build a wall of liquid air about her to fend off amatory advances, that place is the editorial room of a great metropolitan daily. One must have leisure to fall in love and only the office boys could assemble enough idle time to call it leisure. Her desk faced Burlingame's, and Burlingame was the dramatic editor, a scholar and a gentleman. He liked to hear Kitty talk, and often he lured her into the open, and he gathered information about theatrical folks that was outside 
even his wide range of knowledge. A drizzly fog had hung over New York since morning. Kitty was finishing up some Sunday special. Burlingame was reading proofs. All day theatrical folks had been in and out of this little ten-by-twelve cubby hole, and now there would be quiet. But no, the door opened, and an iron-gray head intruded. "'Will I be in the way?' "'Lord, no!' cried Burlingame, throwing down his proofs. "'Come along in, Cutty.' The great war correspondent came in and sat down, sighing gratefully. Cutty was a nickname he carried and smoked, everywhere they would permit him, the worst-looking and the worst-smelling pipe in Christendom. You may not realise it, but a nickname is a roundabout Anglo-Saxon way of telling a fellow you love him. He was Cutty, but only among his dear intimates. Mind you, to the world at large, to presidents, kings, ambassadors, generals, and capitalists, he is known by another name. You will find it on the roster of the Royal Geographical, on the title page of several unique books on travel jewels and drums, in magazines and newspapers, on the membership roll of the Savage in London and the Lambs in New York. But you will not find it in this story, because it would not be fair to set his name against the unusual adventures that crossed his line of life with that of the young man who wore the tobacco pouch suspended from his neck. Tall, bony, graceful enough, except in a chair, where his ankles became conspicuous, the ruddy, weather-beaten complexion of a deep-sea sailor, and a sailor man's blue eye, the brow of a thinker and the mouth of a humorist. Men often call another man handsome when a woman knows they mean manly, 